Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with insight into why Putin has manufactured this crisis over Ukraine and why Western leaders can't grasp what is underpinning Putin's mindset, which is Russia's historical view of Ukraine that ironically no longer applies since Putin's actions in the last decade have turned the Ukrainian people from friends to enemies of their former compatriots. Joining us is Emily Channel Justice, the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013-2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. And we will discuss her article at the conversation, Why Putin Has Such a Hard Time Accepting Ukrainian Sovereignty. Then we'll look into a study published today in the journal Environmental Science and Technology, which finds that gas stoves pose a risk to public health and the planet. Joining us is Rob Jackson, Professor of Earth System Science and Senior Fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. His lab currently examines the effects of climate change and droughts on forest mortality and grassland ecosystems and is working to measure and reduce greenhouse gas emissions through the Global Carbon Project, which Jackson chairs. He is a co-author of the new study at at the American Chemical Society, Methane and Nitric Oxide Emissions from Natural Gas Stoves, Cooktops and Ovens in Residential Homes. Then finally, we'll examine why abstractions like inflation and the deficit make it impossible for our government to deal with the reality of improving the lives, health and well-being of Americans, while the same political leaders and politicians have no problem throwing money at the Pentagon and subsidizing agribusiness and the fossil fuel industries, etc., Joining us to assess why Americans are detached and alienated from the purpose of government, which is to serve the governed, is Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent at The Week and managing editor at The American Prospect. He is the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, and we will discuss his new book, Just Out, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Emily Channel Justice, who is the director of the Timurti, the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013-2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emily Channel Justice. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I don't know whether we want to talk about 
the odds here of a war between Russia and Ukraine, but the latest developments are that the written response that the U.S. through Secretary of State Blinken provided the Russians with has been rejected by Russia, saying that they don't deal with the central problem of Ukraine joining NATO. Whether there's some diplomatic paths forward, we don't know. President Putin is apparently speaking with French leader Macron, but he pretty much dismisses the Europeans as the in the EU as a kind of American lapdog. Putin would rather deal directly with the United States because basically he he wants to negotiate with the American superpower to remind the American superpower that Russia is still a superpower and still is still relevant. So that seems to be the broader landscape at this moment. What odds would you give, Emily, since you're obviously in touch with people in Ukraine, of a war breaking up? I I think it's anybody's guess. Um, I was disappointed but not surprised to see the the diplomatic negotiations stall yet again. Um, If you ask experts from Ukraine and if you ask Ukrainians themselves, I think they would say um, largely most of them would agree that they're not fearful of an imminent invasion. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, such... um, other ideas that have been thrown out are our major ramping up of cyber attacks, for instance. Um, there's a lot of different levels, I would say, different scales of potential uh, in, invasion or, or some kind of, of, of advancement of these threats. Um, you know, the experts from the U.S. end, I, I think, have been a little bit more aggressive in their suggestion that an invasion is, in fact, imminent. Um, they've said a lot, of, again, recognizing that there are a lot of different options, which have ranged from a, an occupation of the capital city of Kiev to, you know, some smaller incursions across the eastern border. So there's a lot of different options. And I think that's what makes this so unpredictable is that we really don't know which one seems the most reasonable to Vladimir Putin at any given time. But Vladimir Putin recently wrote an article claiming that Russians and Ukrainians are, quote, one people, a single whole. So if Russia goes to war against Ukraine, then Putin, according to his view of things, would be killing his own people. Yes, that is true. And that is one of the many logics that don't really make any sense here. I mean, he he views Ukraine as part of Russia, but only in a subordinate way. Ukraine was known in the Soviet period as the second socialist republic. Um, The Soviet Union could never have functioned without Ukraine, not only because of its agricultural contributions, but also because of the industry that was developed, especially in the East. Um, And so the, the Putin, the the Ukraine that Putin has in mind that is subservient to a Russian center, it doesn't really exist anymore. And Ukrainians themselves have have really worked hard to establish their own independent identity that's distinct from the Russian Federation as we know it today. Now, of course, that identity includes many Russian speakers, many ethnic Russians, and then many people of other different ethnic backgrounds. It's not an exclusively Ukrainian ethnic state. Um, and, And that's kind of at the crux of what Vladimir Putin can't take and can't accept right now is that Ukrainians have successfully established Ukraine for themselves, but not in the image that he wants them to have. But Putin often invokes this concept of Ruskimir, Russian world. And the logic of that is that Russian civilization extends to anywhere that ethnic Russians live. So in other words, if you speak Russian in Estonia, Latvia, 
Lithuania or Ukraine, you're Russian. It's Russian territory. Is that, is that the logic of Ruski Mir? That is the logic of Ruski Mir. And the, the only way that this concept can exist is because of the imperial past of not only the Soviet Union, but of the Russian Empire. I mean, we know that, you know, the Russian language was intentionally promoted both during the imperial period and during the Soviet period in order to further the Soviet, the Soviet or the Russian imperial control of territories that were not ethnically Russian at all. So it's it's Putin relying on these historical developments that allow him to create this idea that there are, you know, Russian people everywhere. Now, most of the Russian people he's talking about aren't asking for any help at all. For instance, ethnic Russians living in Crimea in 2014 were not asking for any kind of help um, or saving or anything, right? Crimea was was Ukrainian for many years, um, and it had ethnic Russians, ethnic Ukrainians, Crimean Tatars, and various other populations living there before the annexation in 2014, you know, who, who were fine. And so he, he uses this idea of Ruskimir when it's convenient to give him an excuse to get something that he wants, which is precisely what happened in 2014 when Crimea was annexed um, by largely by force and not by the actual demands of the populations there. So it's a real concept in that, yes, there are Russian ethnic people and Russian speakers all over, but he's only mobilizing it in certain moments when it's convenient to justify him getting what he wants. And again, I'm speaking with Emily Channel Justice, who's the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist. She has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012, and her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013 and 2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. So back in uh, 1991... Ukrainians voted for independence from the Soviet Union and all of its regions, including the Donbass, the Donetsk, etc., Luhansk and Crimea, they all supported independence. And the large minority of ethnic Russians, 17.3% of the population at Ukraine's last census in 2001, were included as Ukrainian citizens. So for the most part, even the Russian-speaking areas, they still support Ukrainian independence. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And that is one of the key aspects of the Ukrainian independence movement that really sets it apart. Um, It's that it was a unifying idea of Ukraine. It was a civic idea of Ukraine. If you lived in the territory of Ukraine, you became a Ukrainian citizen in 1991. It didn't matter if you were Ukrainian ethnically, if you spoke Ukrainian, right? You became a citizen. And so Ukraine has been built on this very civic idea of what it means to be Ukrainian since its independence. Um, And also, I I think it's important to point out that we actually don't have very good information about how many ethnic Russians and and primarily Russian speakers live in Ukraine today because the last census was so many years ago. They haven't had another one that can accurately reflect at this point the number of people who self-identify as ethnic Russian or Russian speakers in Ukraine. Well, haven't a lot of of Russian speakers moved from the east, from the, the area that's occupied by the Russian proxies, and now apparently Putin is infiltrating uh, Russian mercenaries into the Donbass. I believe mm-hmm. what, what, over two million have gone back to live in Russia. 
Yeah, that's right. So not only is there a population of some one and a half million people who left the occupied territories to live in Ukraine, so they are internally displaced people, there's an, a, a large number. The estimates that I've seen have been closer to a million people, but we really, really don't know how many people have left the currently occupied territories to go live in Russia. And we've also seen recently this ramping up of of Russian policies to extend limited kinds of citizenship, limited kinds of Russian citizenship to those populations. So, for instance, people who are living in the currently occupied territories may actually have Russian passports. Now, they also have Ukrainian passports, right? So they're holding multiple passports. Um, they have some rights in Russia. For instance, they can vote in national level elections, um, but they are not full Russian citizens and they don't have the right to actually live legally and work legally in the Russian territory. So Putin is using this as a chance to continue to infiltrate this population and creating further, in my opinion, destabilization of that territory without actually giving people living in those territories real citizenship rights or any benefits from being part of Russia. Um, so we're seeing, we've seen in the past seven and eight years, a lot of population movement in both directions into Ukraine and out of Ukraine from those territories. But I have a real fear that any any kind of incursion into those territories in the next weeks will cause just another humongous displacement of people um, into Europe, but also into Russia. Well, not only that, it could result in massive civilian casualties inside Ukraine itself if there is to be a war on the scale that some analysts are predicting. So, you know, when I used to visit the Soviet Union, I ran into all kinds of Ukrainians in Moscow who were completely a part of the Soviet Union. And it seems to me that the ironic achievement that Putin's had so far is that people that had fraternal ties and now hate each other. That's hardly an achievement. Absolutely. And really, the Ukrainian resentment toward Russia has only increased in really the past seven and eight years. Um, Putin obviously had a hand in the election of Viktor Yanukovych in 2010. He was the president uh, who was overthrown during the Euromaidan protests. Um, but it's really only after that that things start to get really bad in terms of Ukrainian attitudes toward Russia because of the military aggression, because of these attempts to try to take the territory over. Previously, you know, I knew lots of Russian speakers in Ukraine. And when I, when I first started to go to Ukraine, the first time I went to Ukraine was 2004, and I spent time in Kiev, and everybody spoke Russian all of the time. And it wasn't because they felt themselves to be Russian. It was it was just kind of how they were raised. That's how they grew up. And now you really, you don't hear Russian as much at all. Um, you know, there's certain laws that have been passed to make people speak Ukrainian more regularly uh, in terms of service industries and that sort of thing. But there really used to be a prevalent sense that both languages and both kind of identities could exist alongside one another. And now I feel like that has shifted a lot because of the implications of using Russian, you know, it, it sort of indicates a certain affinity for Russia, whether that's true or not, you know, that's a different question. But, but people are really trying to make prevalent 
Ukrainian and, and to show their affinity for Ukraine by using the Ukrainian language. And that's true of people who come from the eastern regions as well. People who might have grown up speaking only Russian, um, you know, they're inclined to use Ukrainian just to kind of signify that identity. So how much is the 1932-33 period uh, of famine that was orchestrated by Stalin that killed some 4 million Ukrainians in the well, it was in the, was it in the eastern part of Ukraine or in the, or in the western part of Ukraine? I thought it was the western part of Ukraine. So the famine was mostly concentrated in the eastern territories in the, as part of the kind of collectivization. Because keep in mind that the um, far western territories of Ukraine were not actually part of the Soviet Union until after World War II, um, oh, and so yeah. So what we saw in the thirties um, is this harsh kinds of de- of collectivization. Excuse me. Um, the, the, these particular laws to um, try to destroy the Ukrainian intellectual class, anybody who held land in those regions, you know, that land was collectivized and those people were disenfranchised. Um, and what ends up happening is as starving people leave those territories to try to find food, the Stalin moves in Russian speaking, Russian ethnic populations to live in that territory. That is one of the reasons that that part of the eastern part of Ukraine is understood to be kind of more Russian leaning. It's because of these population transfers that happened during the Stalinist period to put more Russians and more Russian speakers there and root out the, the core of the Ukrainian nationalist movement that existed in those lands. Starve it to death, not rooted out. Right. And, well, that- and those who didn't starve were, were forced, you know, they lost all of their lands, they lost their homes, they lost their families. So... Um, many of them, you know, there's a lot of, of Ukrainian Americans, Ukrainian Canadians who came to uh, North America at that time, too. So, but that bitterness, that historical grievance is not driving anything today. I mean, the, at the time of the Euromaidan and of the ousting of Yanukovych, again, Putin blamed it all on the CIA, not on the fact that the Ukrainian people want to have democracy and the rule of law. He offers gangster government. That's something that he obviously can't get his head around, that people want democracy. They don't want to live under a thug like Lukashenko, the Belarusian thug. So that seems to me the situation that's been in in place. So at that time, I recall that the propaganda campaign coming from Moscow was that all of those people in the Euromaidan and all those people that rose up to kick out Yanukovych were Nazis. So where did he get that from? I mean, it, that propaganda idea was it? Mm-hmm. Was it anything to do with what happened during World War Two with the German occupation? Yeah, I, I think um, you know Ukrainian nationalism is a really complex phenomenon that that can't be done justice in in a single conversation. But what's kind of the key elements to it? Yes, there's a lot of association with Ukrainian nationalism um, and the the anti-Soviet nationalist groups that were very active in the 40s and 50s. This is particularly in Western Ukraine, where I mentioned before the Soviets took over far Western Ukrainian territories after World War II, but they were fought in this, they were stuck in this guerrilla war with these Ukrainian nationalist movements. And a lot of Ukrainian nationalist movements today still draw from that time period. And there's a a lot of scholarly debate about whether those groups were actually 
fascist Nazi oriented groups or whether they allied with Nazi forces simply because that made it easier to fight the Soviets. Um, I find a kind of a lot of fascist elements in a lot of their ideologies, but that's a that's a much longer conversation. Um, but so that's kind of where Putin gets this idea that Ukrainian nationalists are automatically fascists or Nazis. It's because of the way they evoke the nationalist movements of the 40s and 50s. That being said, and and yes, I, I having been present during Euromaidan, that ideology, that imagery did exist on the square on the protests. Um, it some people felt like it was dominant. I I personally found like there were so many different groups, so many different voices being represented and negotiating for space and fighting for the same thing um, that you know you you end up having. Um, I wouldn't call it a, a nationalist or fascist coup. I, I don't think that's an accurate reflection um, of what was going on. But there are fascist elements within Ukrainian nationalism. There are fascist elements within Ukrainian nationalism. I would say that that's true. There's a lot of debate about what actual power those groups have in reality in Ukraine right now. They do not have political representation in the government. Um, so to, to many that says, you know, they're not popular. To others, mm -hmm. you know, they're pretty active in terms of street protest and, and shutting down things like LGBT activism, that sort of thing. So they, they do definitely exist and, and are to be contended with. But kind of like the militia groups exist in this country. Exactly. I mean, I think you find this kind of people anywhere, really. I mean, at the same time that there's this this far right fascist group, there's also a far left um activist groups as well that fight for things like, you know, higher education reform. They fight for gender and LGBT rights. They fight for the rights of migrant workers and, and refugees, right? So you always have these kind of balances. Putin clearly is overplaying the role of the far right um, in terms of, you know, trying to make Ukraine look like it doesn't deserve to, to have its rights as a democracy. Um, but in fact, I think these that the fact that they both the right and the left can exist and and, you know, obviously they're in contradiction to one another. But the fact that they can both exist and, and both continue to fight, um, it shows that Ukraine does, in fact, have a kind of multivocal democracy. Well, Emily Channel Justice, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Emily Channel Justice, who is the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Her current research focuses on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during the 2013-2014 Euromaidan mobilizations. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the study published today in the journal Environmental Science and Technology that finds that gas stoves pose a risk to public health and the planet. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rob Jackson, who's a professor of Earth Systems Science and senior fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. 
His lab currently examines the effects of climate change and droughts on forest mortality and grassland ecosystems and is working to measure and reduce greenhouse gas emissions through the Global Carbon Project, which Jackson chairs. He's the co-author of a new study at the American Chemical Society, Methane and Nitric Oxides Emissions from Natural Gas Stoves, Cooktops and Ovens in Residential Homes. It's published today, Thursday, in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rob Jackson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there are uh, a third of U.S. households have gas top stoves. That's about 40 million homes cook with natural gas. In California, it's 60% of homes favor natural gas. But your study finds that even when your gas stove is turned off, it's still likely or often leaks methane. And methane, of course, is a virulent global warming gas. So we've had conversations in the past about this, but finally, it seems like you're getting some attention here. Is that right? Well, we are getting some attention. It it was quite surprising what we found. We, We found that stoves, on average, emit more methane while they're off than while they're on. The 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 rates are higher, the emission rates are higher when the flame is on, but for 23 hours of the day, the stove sits there off, and there's a slow bleed of methane into the air of the home and the atmosphere all the time, uh, just simply by owning a stove and have, having natural gas pipes in your house. And does that extend to water heaters and gas-powered clothes dryers? It definitely extends to water heaters. We published a paper a year or two ago uh, studying methane emissions from water heaters and found a very similar result for uh, big tank water heaters that most Americans use. The largest source of emissions was, uh, again, when the when the water heater wasn't running, uh, just from the pilot light, and kind of the slow, steady-state off emissions once again. And the study finds that the cumulative effect of all these leakages from, from the 40 million homes with natural gas um, stovetops is it comparable to the impact of 500,000 gas-powered cars driving every year? Is that right? That's right, and that's only for a narrow segment. That uh, the me- only when you when you look. I'm sorry, I'll start over. Uh, only for the methane leaking inside our homes, that amount of methane is equivalent to the the carbon dioxide emissions from half a million U.S. cars driving for a year. The carbon dioxide emissions from burning natural gas. Uh, make gas stoves equivalent to almost a, two million cars. So there are, uh, you know, there are there are multiple ways that that gas appliances warm the planet. They generate carbon dioxide emissions when fossil fuels are burned, and gas appliances in particular leak methane from the day they they are extracted in oil and gas wells through the distribution chain and pipelines, and now as we've quantified into our homes. So. Separate from your study about what's happening in the home with the gas stove, if you go back through the chain all the way from the home through to the main gas pipelines to gas storage plants, then to gas wells and fracking, etc., then the leakage is exponentially more, is it not? It is. And, and um, you know, we estimate that about 1% of, of all the natural gas being used by the the stoves is leaked to the atmosphere. If you go all the way upstream through pipelines and and to oil and, oil and gas extraction, the number is probably closer to 
to three or even four percent in the in the leakiest systems. So a, lar- a large and, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of current work to try and understand the full leakage across the natural gas supply chain. The 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 part of the the natural gas system that's been studied the least is in our homes and buildings. That result, you know, that that fact may surprise people. Well, of course, methane gas is 80 times more powerful global warming gas than CO2. That's right. And it's very identifiable. So one of the things that is apparently going on here, though, is that the gas companies are proactively trying to protect themselves and protect their market share. And new buildings that are being built in some states like California don't hook up to gas. But in some states, the gas lobby is passing laws forbidding new constructions to deny a gas hookup. Is that right? That is right. There are bans on gas appliances and new construction. Here in California, the cities that have passed future bans include San Francisco, Oakland, and San Jose. New York City just passed a ban on, on, on natural gas appliances and new construction starting in 2027. So it's the largest city in the country so far to do that. And of course, in other areas, we have bans on bans. There are many states and, and cities and legislatures that are uh, uh, passing laws that, that eliminate the option of, of, of a ban on, on such construction. I think, if we take just a minute, I think, I think bans on future construction makes sense. We know we have to transition away from fossil fuels, and we know and, we know and measured in our study that, that gas stoves are emitting indoor air pollutants like NOx gases that we're breathing at concentrations that can, can harden people's health, that can cause asthma in kids, coughing and wheezing. So we know that we need to wean ourselves from natural gas. And the most orderly way to do that is to stop putting new gas infrastructure into homes and buildings where you're locking in the emissions and the health effects for 50 years or more. That's more desirable than, than asking people to swap out a, a water heater or a stove before the end of its lifetime. It's also cheaper to, to, to implement a... Uh, uh, to electrify the system on new construction. So I, I think the new construction bans make a lot of sense. And again, I'm speaking with Rob Jackson, who's Professor of Earth System Science and Senior Fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. His lab currently examines the effects of climate change and drought on forest mortality and grasslands ecosystems and is working to measure and reduce greenhouse gas emissions through the Global Carbon Project, which Jackson chairs. And he is the co-author of a new study at the American Chemical Society, Methane and Nitric Oxide Emissions from Natural Gas Stoves, Cooktops and Ovens in Residential Homes, which is published today, Thursday, in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. So let's talk a little bit about nitric oxide emissions. You say that they can trigger asthma and other respiratory conditions. Is that a byproduct of leaking gas stoves? It's not really a byproduct of leaks. It's a byproduct of the flames. And the, the most common way people are used to thinking about this is in the, in the tailpipes of cars. A, a stove flame is a little bit like the tailpipe exhaust from a car. Years ago, we required automobiles to use catalytic converters Catalytic converters make sure that the, that the tailpipe exhaust, the fuel exhaust, is fully oxidized to carbon dioxide or, or nitrogen compounds. There's no catalytic converter that we can bolt onto a, to a stove. So when stoves burn, if the fuel's too rich or the air doesn't have enough oxygen in it, you can generate carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide that we measure. You generate carbon dioxide all the time as a greenhouse gas. 
but you also generate nitrogen oxide compounds. One of them in particular, nitrogen dioxide, is a health hazard. It's an irritant. It triggers asthma, um, coughing and wheezing, and other, and, and other health effects. We found that that stoves emit NOx gases and concentrations that rise above threshold levels within minutes of, of turning the burner on or oven on in some cases. We also, we also found that stoves emit NOx gases in direct proportion to the amount of gas burned. Turn a burner up or use a larger burner, you breathe more NOx. Light two or three burners, you breathe more NOx too. So it's a wonder some of these chefs uh, on those big wolf stoves <laughs> don't get asthma. Well, it depends. The health effects depend on a lot of things. They depend on how large your kitchen is. They depend on how well ventilated your home or, or kitchen is. They depend on whether you use your hood. Surprisingly, uh, only about a third of, of Americans turn their ventilation hood on when they cook with gas. So one, one message for people listening is every time you turn a burner or oven on on a gas stove, you should automatically turn the hood on too, if you happen to have a hood. So efforts underway by the American Gas Association, which is the lobby for gas, they're trying to apparently come up with a cleaner replacement, which they're calling renewable natural gas from agriculture and using hydrogen produced from renewable energy. What's the viability of that? There is a, a great deal of work looking at renewable natural gas. It's mostly relevant from a carbon dioxide greenhouse gas standpoint. Instead of uh, extracting or mining fossil methane from underground, uh, companies are trying to generate it using biodigesters from landfills and, and feedlots and such. For the purposes of our study, though, whether the, the, the natural gas comes from renewable source or a fossil source makes no difference for the methane emissions and the NOx emissions that we measured. It does matter for carbon dioxide. But um, you know, using renewable natural gas still would have the same methane leakage to the atmosphere and would still generate the same amount of NOx air pollution in our homes. So RNG isn't a fix for the, the problems that we measured in this study. And as we were discussing earlier, according to the Natural Resources Defense Council, 20 states have laws on their books that prevent cities from banning gas hookups to new buildings. So the, presumably that's the work of the American Gas Association there in lobbying but as we mentioned earlier if you go back up the supply chain to the wells themselves the fracking etc and the long distribution pipelines from gas fields in, in storage in and then into the homes of 40 million american homes there are other massive leakages of methane going on globally are there not the permafrost melting in siberia for example apparently is can you measure that and compare where the worst leakages are happening around the world? Well, we can, and, and we do this as, through the Global Carbon Project that uh, you mentioned in the introduction. The largest source of methane emissions to the atmosphere surprisingly comes from agriculture, particularly cattle, the, the, cat, the cow burps, uh, their manure. There's also a fairly large source from rice paddies. The next largest source from human activities is the fossil fuel industry. That's coal, oil, and, and gas extraction. There are large natural sources from wetlands in particular, and we're very much concerned about the potential for uh, runaway methane release in the Arctic as permafrost thaws. We're not seeing that yet. There's no evidence for that globally. There are some 
you know, there is footage showing, you know, bubbling seas and bubbling lakes in Russia and elsewhere. But globally, when we look at the atmosphere overall, we don't see that happening yet uh, in the Arctic. And that's good news. We don't, you know, once, if and when that, that hemorrhaging of methane or carbon dioxide starts, there will be almost no way to, to cap that off. So we don't want that happening. So when you have these bubbling methane lakes in Siberia, could you ignite the methane? Would that be less damaging to the atmosphere than having the methane go into the atmosphere as opposed to the CO2, which would result from burning it? It would be uh, preferential or desirable to, to burn it. In fact, that's what we do in, in industrial situations, right? Everyone has seen flares at refineries or chemical plants. And companies are required to flare methane rather than releasing it to the atmosphere. Flaring converts methane to carbon dioxide, just as it happens when, when we light a flame on our stoves. Then because methane is so much more dangerous and potent than, than carbon dioxide, flaring is a good thing. If you could get to the Arctic in these sources and, and, and light those, those gases on fire, yes, that would be better than letting it go to the air as methane. But they're a long way away. There are places that are hard to get to, and they don't necessarily emit methane at a high enough concentration, 50,000 parts per million or more, to maintain a flame constantly. So you can, you know, you can imagine thousands or even millions of small lakes across Siberia, Canada, and Alaska. There's no way to reach all of those and, and, uh, and light that methane on fire. But there are means to reduce the leakage in the oil and gas and coal extraction, right? There are many ways to, to reduce leakage. I mean, some of them are, are no more difficult than, than turning a wrench. Um, we need better and faster monitoring. I'm excited about the new satellites that are launching that will help us find the largest leaks very quickly. But the quickest way for us to eliminate methane leaks from the fossil fuel system is to use less fossil fuels. And that's, uh, you know, there's no methane emissions associated with solar or wind power and, uh, and other renewable sources. So yes, yes, we can do a better job of infrastructure that's on the ground today through monitoring and, and detection and repair. But the best way to eliminate these emissions is to transition to cleaner, safer renewables. So if we go to an all-electric future, which seems to be the only choice we have, obviously the electricity has to be generated from renewable, non-polluting sources, right? And that's a big part of the Build Back Better plan that's stalled in the mm -hmm. U.S. Senate because of largely because of Joe Manchin, who comes from the coal industry. Yeah, the Build Back Better bill appears to be stymied in the in the Senate, as everyone knows. Uh, you're right that to electrify our vehicles and our homes more than they are now, uh, we will. Need a lot. We will need more electricity. We'll need more trans transmission lines. We'll need more solar and wind fields. You know, other possible sources: nuclear, um, geothermal. No energy infrastructure is environmentally free. You know, so the best the best source of energy is a is a is a watt that we don't use or don't need. So energy efficiency is extremely important, and, and demand side management matters too. You know, can we can we reduce the amount of electricity and energy in general that that we use? We haven't done a very good job of that in this country. We've we've very much improved efficiency at the scale of buildings and homes and insulation and such, and industry too. And there's tremendous progress that's been made, but energy use keeps rising relentlessly here in the United States and globally per person. 
Well, Rob Jackson, I thank you for your study. It's an important wake-up call, and I thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Ian, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here again. And again, I've been speaking with Rob Jackson, who's Professor of Earth System Science and Senior Fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. His lab currently examines the effects of climate change and droughts on forest mortality and grasslands ecosystems and is working to measure and reduce greenhouse gas emissions through the Global Carbon Project, which Jackson chairs. He's the co-author of a new study at the American Chemical Society, Methane and Nitric Oxide Emissions from Natural Gas Stoves, Cooktops and Ovens in Residential Homes, which is published today, Thursday, in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into why Americans are detached and alienated from the purpose of government, which is to serve the governed. Could I build a house on the ocean? I could have placed our love in the sky. But it really doesn't matter at all. Now it really doesn't matter at all. Life's a guy. I hope it's gonna Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent at The Week and managing editor at The American Prospect. He is the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast and the author of the new book, Just Out, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Cooper. Thanks for having me. So we've just witnessed that we can't have the Build Back Better program of Joe Biden's, which would be a small, modest, but necessary step towards dealing with global warming and reorienting our energy uh, towards a renewable future, as opposed to the current situation where fossil fuels are killing us and killing the planet. But we have a senator from the fossil fuel coal industry Senator Manchin, who basically, along with Senator Sinema, killed it on the basis that, you know, it was bad for inflation. It was going to add to the deficit. So we have this situation where in Washington, the only issue that Democrats and Republicans agree on in a bipartisan nature is throwing more and more money at the Pentagon. But heavens forbid that you try and get some money to improve the lives of Americans, to prove the infrastructure that we all depend upon, you can't get anywhere. So why is this happening to America? Because it feels to me like your book is starting to answer some of these questions that I find so vexing. Yeah, you, you, the weird thing about Manchin's sort of complaints there is that, you know, he worries it's going to stoke inflation or that it's not fully paid for, when in fact it is fully paid for. And if you dig into his history, as you say, he's voted for the defense budget basically every year, which amounts to something a bit short of uh, $10 trillion between when he started in 2011 um, up through 2020. Ten, 10 years, you know, just for inflation and so on, something like $9.2, $9.4 trillion. Never made a peep about that being paid for in any sense. And you dig into the disagreement between him and Biden, and it's over the fact that uh, Biden's child tax credit does not have a work requirement in it. 
so this is a major change in how Democrats have traditionally done policy. They usually have some kind of a work requirement that you have to, uh, you know, you have to have some labor income to be able to claim it at all. And it'll sort of phase in, it'll add like 40 cents to every dollar of uh, labor income that you get type of thing. Um, and what that has is the effect of cutting out the poorest people in the country entirely. You know, the very poorest people don't have any labor income for whatever reason. You know, a lot of them are single mothers. You know, they simply can't afford to work because they can't afford daycare. And so, you know, this was a big change and Manchin didn't like it. Manchin wants the work requirement in there to cut the poor off. Um, and basically that would eviscerate the most of the poverty fighting impact of the child tax credit, though not all of it. And this comes from, you know, as I talk about in my book, you know, a sort of moral ideology, a way of thinking about society and a way of thinking about work that is uh, not about technical details. It's about who is a good person and good people are workers. And if you're not working, it must be because you're lazy. And so there's this picture of poverty being caused by individual effort the lack of individual effort, rather. The poor people are lazy, they don't want to work, they're entitled, and so it's important to have a sort of discipline, you know, to force them in the market, into the uh, labor market to, you know, make profit working for capitalist businesses. And, um, you know, even though that doesn't actually work, it's still this really deeply embedded ideology in this country, and you see it absolutely everywhere, in Republicans and Democrats, that you need to discipline the working class that they can't ever get any kind of handout without uh, having to, you know, put some time in at a job. And of course, there are more poor people in the state of West Virginia, I think, per capita than any other state in this country. Yeah, it's it's up there. I think it kind of goes back and forth. You know, usually it's uh, Mississippi, Alabama, West Virginia are, are the sort of bottom three. But certainly West Virginia could, it benefited uh, more than almost any other state from this policy. Um, and it's one of the reasons why West Virginia is so uh, has been, you know, starved for jobs in general. It's just a lack of income, you know, and this is sort of like uh, it being left behind and deindustrialization and so on is certainly part of why the op opioid epidemic was so bad in West Virginia. People are just totally hopeless. They feel accurately that the government's just completely abandoned them and Manchin uh, wants that co to continue. And yet they voted for Trump in, I think, what, by 40 percent, something ridiculous. So oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, you know, a lot of people, you get a backlash in many cases that hooks into existing, you know, prejudice and worsens it and often makes no sense at all. But, you know, I think in West Virginia, Trump was perceived as just kind of a middle finger to the political establishment. And that was as good as they were going to be able to do. And again, I'm speaking with Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent at The Week and managing editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast and the author of the new book, Just Out. How are you going to pay for that? Smart answers to the dumbest questions in politics. So why is it, though, that it's so difficult to pass any legislation that helps the American people in fundamental ways, and yet you can subsidize the military-industrial complex on a bipartisan basis without any debate whatsoever. And there are no enemies out there, at least you know, a few guys in pickup trucks running around the desert. And yet 
they actually spend more money than the than even the Pentagon asked for in this last budget. By the way, they yeah. added another twenty five billion to it. So then you've got on top of that you've got agribusiness and subsidizing oil, gas, and coal. These are these are the priorities now. This didn't happen in your book, How Are We Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics, deals with this disconnect that we have in America. And is it the fact that what we had from 1947 to about 1977 in this country, we had something of a social democracy, which other countries have. We are unique amongst the democracies where our people vote largely for single issues like guns and abortion and prayer in school, but they don't vote for the simple formula that you pay your taxes and government is supposed to be a good steward of your taxes and they're supposed to return your taxes in the form of government services and to make sure that you don't have sick people dying and you don't have people in the streets, homeless, etc. And we, of course, have sick people. We have a sickness profit uh, system. We don't have a healthcare system. And we have people littering the streets with an epidemic of homelessness. So yeah. did, did all this happen gradually? I mean, I, I recall Ronald Reagan's whole idea of saying that government is the problem, not the solution. And, of course, you know, the end of end of social democracy happened in that transition from Carter to Reagan. And that was the time, by the way, when Americans stopped saving and moved credit, where they become slaves to their credit cards. Yeah, I, I think you can point to a number of things, but I, I would say there's two big factors there. Um, the first one is that uh, the American constitutional system is just not good. It's it's way, way out of date. And the 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 problem with it is that it, there are too many veto points. There are too many ways to stop something from happening. You know, it's like you want a law. You got to get through the committees in the House and the Senate. And then you got to get through the, the full House and the full Senate. And then you have the Senate filibuster. And then you have to reconcile those two things. And then the president has to sign it. And then the Supreme Court can strike it down based off of made up gobbledygook, you know, because that's what constitutional law is. The law is whatever my partisan, you know, uh, interests say it is. And that just makes it impossible to do anything just about. You need, you know, to, to create the New Deal order, you needed this world historic uh, crisis striking at exactly the right time to like deliver Democrats to sort of gigantic majorities that allow them to pass many, many things through the House and the Senate and also bully the Supreme Court into stopping uh, them from striking them down and then hold on to the uh, presidency long enough and the Senate that they could stack the court with Democratic appointees. You know, normal uh, democracy, you you have more than two parties, even in Canada or the United States, where it's first past the post system, you have at least three serious parties. And, you know, I think that the way that that happens, interacting with midterm elections, where you have a very different electorate from the presidential elections, you just have this massive structural obstacle to doing anything at all. And uh, secondly, I would say is the legacy of slavery. You know, you think about what killed the new, what was the crack in the new deal that allowed conservatives and uh, neoliberals, you know, or the propertarians, as I would call them, people like Joe Manchin, 
who have basically unpopular ideas about economics. It was uh, white supremacy, Jim Crow in the South. Basically, the New Deal order held as long as Democrats didn't tamper with Jim Crow. And once that happened, the Democratic Party was doomed in the South. And basically, opportunist neoliberals managed to hook a kind of laissez-faire economic policy onto the conservative racial politics of people in the South. And that is now the dominant, you know, the South is the stronghold of the uh, Republican Party. And that sort of politics has been adapted throughout the country. And there's, you know, you see Confederate flags in like Minnesota nowadays or Colorado, a very strange phenomenon. But, you know, that basically is just like a huge obstacle to creating you know, an alliance of the working class and a, and a basically a labor party, which the Democrats were for about 30 years, as you say. But now, basically, you know, a- after the 80s, you just had two parties of capitalism, as, as Noam Chomsky would say. You know, you have a sort of like a liberal wing and a conservative wing, but really nothing like a, a labor party. And as we're seeing today, it's a real uh, struggle to go back to that tradition even now. And both parties are financed by the same people. More or less. I feel like it's kind of you have your private capitalists, you know, Mercer's, the Koch family with the Republicans. And then you have like the big publicly traded companies, the Goldman Sachs, the, uh, you know, Citibank and all the rest of it with the Democrats. But, yeah, more or less, you, you don't have unions as like a major interest block in this country. So, Ryan Cooper, then given that we are more of a plutocracy and less of a democracy every day. And now, of course, we're going to even become a one-party neo-fascist state very soon because of the massive voter suppression going on where the Republicans are going to create, or, and Trump, their leader, are going to, and he's going to come back as the new Fuhrer of this one-party state. And the Democrats will become, they already have structural problems, as you alluded to, you know, with the Electoral College and and the disproportionate representation from rural areas. So they've, they're not even a level playing field before you have all this massive voter suppression. But given that that's our future, our near future, and it doesn't seem like the Democrats have a plan here, the only possible way that we can stop the U.S. becoming a kind of a one-party state like Orban's Hungary, which uh, Tucker Carlson has been celebrating uh, it would be a massive mobilization of people to come out to vote in at the end of the year and in 2024, but God knows how many of those votes get counted. So that's the bleak prognosis we have. But if you go back to recent history, under LBJ, for example, a lot of stuff got passed and a lot of stuff got into law. And even under, under Nixon, Nixon was actually prepared to have single-payer health care. So what happened there? Is it just the triumph of the oligarchs over the over the Democrats? Well, you I think you had a number of things going on with that. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, this was still the sort of New Deal consensus to some degree. Um, and you had a, a, a lot more overlap between the parties. You know, the parties did not used to be so ideologically disciplined. You'd have some liberal Republicans in the Northeast, um, principally, uh, you know, the Romneys, uh, George Romney was a real civil rights guy from in Michigan back in the day. People may not remember that. 
Um, and you had a lot of conservative Democrats in the South. And then so you had these sort of like cross-cutting partisan and ideological interests that would allow people to have sort of common ground. Um, and then secondly, you had the you have the rise of like procedural hardball. You know, the 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 only way a constitutional order as completely daffy as the United States Constitution can function is with a whole lot of norms that like paper over the ridiculous contradictions and inefficiencies. Um, so like the fact that you could use uh, that a filibuster was possible, that just happened by accident when they cleaned up their rule book in the early 19th century. And then didn't one didn't even happen for like 37 years after that. Um, and then they were carefully hemmed in through tradition, uh, basically just saying like that the filibuster is for or stopping civil rights legislation. Um, but we won't we won't do anything else because that would be completely preposterous to just like strangle the government um, in the any sort of like normal, you know, budgetary process. But that's, you know, as as the parties have become more polarized and radicalized and propaganda basically is, has taken the driver's seat in the uh, Republican Party, you have a steady ratcheting up of procedural hardball. Mitch McConnell, you know, uh, basically invented the modern filibuster in 2007. They're just saying, like, I'm going to filibuster absolutely everything that, that President Obama does if I possibly can do it. And that just raises an insurmountable obstacle to to doing anything. And it's really, you know, the filibuster has really kind of strangled the entire congressional culture. You know, like everything now, just to keep the lights on in this country, has to go through these gigantic mega bills. Back in the day, you used to be able to have a career as like a sort of modest sort of second tier committee chairman or something where you're like, I'm in on the environment and I have my little bills and I get my little bill through and I go back home and I say, look, I got some pork. I did an environmental thing, you know, all sorts of this kind of stuff. Now it's like the leadership runs everything, whether or not your your bill gets into the, you know, omnibus reconciliation package or the the budgetary continuing resolution that gets passed. That the regular backbenchers have nothing to do with that. Basically, they're just there to press a button every now and then. And it's just it's a uh, it's made the Congress into a laughing stock. You know, it's just not a place for serious governing. And, um, you know, again, it's just how uh, a steadily more extreme political uh, culture interacts with our in just just anachronistic electoral system. But just in the last minute, is there a way to get Americans to focus on what the purpose of government is to take care of people and take care of society as opposed to take care of the people who own our politicians i think the best thing that i could recommend is for people to organize their workplace you know a, a massive interest group in favor of like the working class uh, and that could uh, stop potentially you know stop the process of production through strikes in critical bottleneck areas that's something that just is such a yawning abyss in our politics. And it's the most promising thing I can imagine to actually counter, you know, this uh, like rise of, of fascism, as you termed it, I think quite accurately. Well, Ryan Cooper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Sure thing. And again, I've been speaking with Ryan Cooper, who's a national correspondent at The Week and managing editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast and the author of the new book, Just Out. How are you going to pay for that? Smart answers to the dumbest questions in politics. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.